So uh, before uh, the service, I was speaking with uh, Reverend Venita, and he says, you know, we got to start on time today. I said, you know, the Catholics always start on time. He said, well, the Buddhists often don't, because they're waiting for more people to show up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to talk today about uh, some reflections I've had lately, because I'm in the process of writing a book about my community service. And what I find is when you start writing a book about your community service or about yourself, that all sorts of stuff comes up that you haven't thought about for a long time. And so I'm going to start with how I got here. How did I get to IBMC? You know, because L.A. is a big place, and, uh, and we're just like the little fish in the sea. And somehow I got through that front door. So the first Buddhist book I read was the Dhammapada. And it didn't have any commentary. Uh, it was simply verses translated into English. And I thought, this is really cool. I'm going to go find a Buddhist temple and see what they have to say. So there is a monk in L.A. who I think is the oldest monk in L.A., Dhammarama. Is he the oldest? No, yes. Yes. Now he's the oldest. At that time, he wasn't. And, and I found out he had a temple in Hollywood. And I thought, I'm going to go to a Buddhist temple and see what it's like. So I went to the Buddhist temple, and his English was terrible. He could barely speak English, you know. But he was a scholarly monk and knew a lot of stuff. I just didn't have access to it because I only spoke English. And then most of the people that came to that temple, English wasn't their first language. So it's difficult to want to learn something when you can't understand what people are saying. And that day they had a guest speaker come. And the guest speaker was Shinzen Young, who was the vice abbot of IBMC. And he was going to go give a Dharma talk. And he walked in the room and he's this sort of like Caucasian English as a first language kind of guy. And I went, whoa. You know, I, I didn't think Buddhism had a lot of white people teaching at that time. But here he was, and he gave a great Dharma talk, and because he spoke English as a first language, I understood most of what he said, except when it came to the Buddhist philosophy, and then it was really difficult. So he looked at me and said, you know, you should come over to IBMC. And he didn't say why. But I thought, wow, that's sort of an interesting invitation to get. So he didn't say where it was. He just said, you should come to IBMC. So I went to the phone book and went to the yellow pages under meditation centers. And they actually had a whole section. And there was IBMC. And I said, okay, now I know where it is. And it even had the times of meditation and the Sunday service. And so I decided to go meditate. And it was a rainy night. And I found parking pretty easily then because there were about half as many people in L.A. as we have now. And this was 1979, 78, 79. And so we had a 15-minute explanation of meditation. And we had one of the uh, Western monks who was here, living here, took us, the, all the new people, took us next door to Kuan Yin House and they had a little empty room, and they had a, a chalkboard set up, and, and he gave us an introduction on how to 
watch your breath and count. And then he said, anybody have any questions? And I thought, you know, I, I don't even, I, I can't have questions yet. I'm that new. There were no questions. So I said, okay, thanks very much. So I came over here and I sat right over there on the floor. And it was chilly and it was wet and damp outside. And I sat and it was, and we sat for three 20-minute periods, which I had never done before. And it was just a terrible, terrible introduction to meditation because all I saw was the suffering, you know, which was good for Buddhism, but not for meditation. So I understood the first noble truth that first night, that life is ultimately unsatisfactory, especially if you sit on the floor. And then Shenzhen showed up. He, he, he lived in this, in this house, and he came down, and he gave a, a, a Dharma talk, half-hour Dharma talk. And I went, whoa, you know? I want to see the world the way he does. You know, I was getting tired of seeing the world the way I did. And so I continued to come back and, and struggle through meditation, but just could hardly wait for the Dharma talk. And, and I think I have to give him credit for, for allowing me to see that Westerners, number one, could practice meditation. And Westerners, number two, could actually learn the Dharma and explain it in an understandable way to other Westerners. And when I think about the variety of ethnic Buddhist temples in Los Angeles, I see the necessity for that. Because Dharma is very subtle and very difficult and to understand in first hearing or second hearing or third hearing. And sometimes you just need to hear it a hundred times before it starts to, to make sense to you. And I also understood years later why I was invited to go to Vietnamese temples by Michelle, who's in the back row, because she wanted Vietnamese children to have a Westerner share the Dharma because they were now citizens in America and they were going to school in America and they were watching MTV in America and the Vietnamese monks had a certain level of protocol that was necessary to approach them and greet them. And the Western monks just said, hi, you know, how's your day going? And that made them so much more comfortable. So they heard the Dharma in Vietnamese that they didn't speak. Their parents did. But then they heard the Dharma in English that they spoke and their parents didn't. And, and, and Reverend Shanti at the Anheim Temple, a lot of the Dharma talks are given in English because the children speak English. It makes perfect sense. So the only way we're going to bring Buddhism to America is to speak its first language and to have examples. And the Buddha himself said, uh, Dharma, Buddhism, hasn't taken root until native-born children who grow up to be adults are teaching the Dharma. So I like that idea. So I started long ago and, and, and struggled for years and years to understand what the heck they were saying and why. Now, another turning point for me was the story of Chana the charioteer and Siddhartha. And, and he had been sort of, I don't want to say a prisoner, almost captive in luxury. He was captive in a luxurious lifestyle. 
They had three temples, for the, one for the hot weather, one for the cold weather, one for the rainy weather. Uh, he only had the best clothing and the, and the best food, and on and on it went. And so he was insulated from the realities of life, pretty much the way Westerners are insulated from the reality of life. I, I, I think of Syria or Iraq, and there's no insulation. You're just in it. And the dead people in the street and their children crying and there's not enough food and you're just right there. And then you come over here and we've got this sort of wonderful delusion that the world is a wonderful place to live. And all we have to do is work hard and we'll get everything we want and never have to suffer and always be satisfied. So in reading the story, Siddhartha and Chana go out into the streets of the city for the first time. And I love stories like this because it allows us to vicariously experience something new and different. And it said the first thing he saw was this really old person. Now, at the time, I was like 43, 42, so I didn't consider myself old. Other people did, but I didn't. And, and I sort of picked up on this you know, real easily, you know, like Siddhartha said, well, what's wrong with that person? Because he had never seen an old person before. And if you've never seen an old person and all of a sudden see one, you're sort of shocked, you know, you go, whoa, what happened? And what happened was life. Life happened. And now we have to deal with it. So Chana explained to Siddhartha, well, everybody who's born if they live long enough, will get old and resemble that person in some way. And it must have been a shock to Siddhartha with his fine clothing and his well-fed stomach and, and, and his environment of beauty that this was in his future, that he too one day would resemble that old person. So they continued. And this got me thinking, old people, old people, what do we do with old people? Well, you know, we, we, we like to put them with a bunch of other old people so they can all live together. <laughs> and for a couple years, I went to visit the young people in Seal Beach at Leisure World. We had a wonderful group that would meet once a month, and we would talk. And they have like 7,500 people over the age of 55 living together in this community. And one of the things I noticed is there, there was a lot of activities all the time. If you wanted to do something, there was always something to do. They had tap dancing, and they had calligraphy, and a wonderful library. And, and they just went on and on and on, club after club. And then we have the Buddhist club. And one of the topics we always like to talk about was life and death, the beginning and the end. You know, because by that time, the middle was pretty much insignificant. And so, you know, how, how do we live well as an elderly person? What's the secret? And there was exercise, and there was yoga, and there was like a lot of other stuff, but the real the real treat of being there was to see that you live well by how you think and what you do and, and not being defined by others 
who look at you and go, wow, that's an old person. So at 44, I'm starting to think differently about what it means to age and, and, and how to do it well and to see the inevitability of age. That nobody, though in L.A. they try hard, but nobody gets away being young their whole life externally. But you can get away being young your whole life internally. And I just posted something by C.S. Lewis today on my Facebook page. If you live long enough, you'll read fairy tales again. And I thought, what a wonderful way of looking at it. Because you have this wonderful youthful attitude, and you have this wonderful aged attitude. And in between, you take everything so seriously. You know, everything is so important. So, Siddhartha and me, thanks to Chana, started to think about aging and old people. And then the next person they saw was a really sick person. And, and because Siddhartha had been kept secluded in his luxury, he had never seen a really sick person. They always got, took him away. And so Siddhartha said, well, what's that? And Chana said, well, that's a sick person. And everybody that lives long enough will get sick. And now we're in the midst of a flu epidemic, you know, and everybody's like freaking out and some are sick and some aren't sick and some aren't going shopping because other sick people are shopping and they don't want to come in contact. And the flu vaccine is about a, has about a third uh, reliability and two-thirds not so much and you just go, should I get the shot, should I not get the shot? And then somebody who's five dies and you go, wow. How can you die at five from the flu? And then somebody at 85 dies, you go, wow. And it just sort of gives you this fear, you know, of getting sick. But Siddhartha, later to become the Buddha, warned us, everybody that's born is going to get sick over and over and over again. And one day that sickness may take you down. And some of the most enlightened countries in the world have... Healthcare for everybody. Because they know what the Buddha knew. Everybody's going to get sick. You know? And in America, even if you have health insurance, it may not be enough to keep you from bankruptcy. You know? And it's, it's an odd way of viewing the world. And I had never viewed it that way before. I had never seen health insurance as being that important because I was youthful, I didn't get sick very often. I felt good about myself. Only other people get sick, not me. And then bronchitis. And I go, whoa, bronchitis. I'm coughing and sneezing. And the doctor says, you know, you should quit smoking. It's not good to smoke and have bronchitis. Oh, I'll be okay, doctor. Just give me some penicillin and some antibiotics and I'll be fine. And and in your youth, you seem to mend quickly, and as you age, you sort of mend a little bit slower, and then at some point, you don't mend at all, and you just go, wow, what is this? So I'm reading this story, and I was just having insight after insight into the nature of my life, which nobody had talked about before. You know, everybody I talked to always told me how I should live, not, you know, how I'm going to get sick, how I'm going to get old. That's just, they sort of just skipped over that part. Didn't want me to get depressed about being born. 
And so what do we do with sick people? Well, you know, we don't want to see them. We don't want to get sick. So we stick them in hospitals. So it's rare to see somebody who's really sick on the street unless they're homeless. Because we stuck them in a hospital and only friends and relatives get to see them. So it prevents us from seeing the reality of our life. In the same way, aging and putting elderly people in communities or in rest homes or assisted care prevents us from seeing the reality of our life as well. And then there were two more things. And so Chana and Siddhartha are going through the streets of the city and then they see this dead person. You know, and I'm thinking way back when, they probably had a lot of dead people in the streets and stuff, and they, maybe they buried them within a day or so. But they didn't have morgues, you know, they didn't do autopsies. It was just sort of like, you know, we got to get rid of this guy because he really smells, you know. So let's bury him. And I thought to myself, you know, in America, we don't see dead people very often. Even the news sort of blurs everything out, you know. Just when about the, the police officer is about to shoot the guy and kill him, everything gets blurred. For your protection, we're not showing you this, you know. And so we have a deluded way of looking at life and death. And we have all these games people play, and we have these movies coming out all the time, and we have these television shows, and everybody's killing everybody in a variety of ways. Very creative, you know. And, and it, it sort of makes us believe it's not as bad as it is. Because what death is, it's the end of this life, according to Buddhism. So I thought about dead people. And I hadn't thought about dead people before in any real way. Because I was still relatively young and looked at my death as being far, far in the future. So, car accident. 405, two dead people, crushed by the other car. What's the first thing we do? We cover them up. We, a sheet, a jacket, a yellow tarp, something. We can't see the dead people. Don't show the dead people. Then we call an ambulance. And if you've ever looked closely at the ambulance, most of them have these really small windows. You can't look in. So we put the dead person in the ambulance with the small windows. And then we take him to the coroner. And the coroner says, yes, he's dead. Makes the check mark. Then, if they have enough money, they go to the mortuary for a funeral. And that's when the mortician does the magic. New shoes, new clothes, new hairdo, makeup, semi-smile. Everything looks just fine. Oh, he's just sleeping. Look how comfortable he looks. You know? And then they have flowers everywhere, so you can't smell the decaying flesh. And then they have a wonderful sermon about life and death and afterlife. So he's not really dead in the sense of he'll soon be resurrected from the Christian perspective, and he'll be with his father forever and ever, and all his friends and relatives and dogs and cats that he's always loved. And we just look at that as sort of, wow, that is so cool. That's, what's so wrong with death? And yet, the very first precept that a Buddhist follows is not to kill. Life needs to be honored. Life is special. It's really hard to be born. 
even though there are 7 billion of us on this planet right now, there are no two that are the same. Even twins tend to be different eventually. Life is short. You know, for some insects, it's a day or two, you know, and, uh, and for some other creatures, you know, it might be 70, 80 years. For a tree, it could be a couple hundred years. For a mountain, it could be thousands of years. But we all have this timer, and it's set to a certain age, and then when it hits its age, then we die. And people say, well, why don't we change the world? Let's change the world. We'll band together and change the world. Well, there's not enough people that will come together and look at it the same problem in the same way to allow us to change anything radically. We only live 60, 70, 80 years. We don't live long enough to change anything except ourselves. But out there, it takes so long to change anything. So this idea of death and life becomes more special for a Buddhist because it's often said, use death as your co-pilot. Have this little guy sitting on your shoulder saying, one day you'll be dead, one day you'll be dead, don't sleep in, get up early, you got stuff to do, one day you'll be dead. So as you start to age, and you've heard the story, old people get up early in the morning, they don't sleep in. Four or five o'clock, they're up. You know, you know, and because because they got stuff to do, they know it's just a matter of time. You know, I'm up five, six, almost every morning. You know, in this neighborhood, it's the most quiet time to be up. It's really nice. So death allows us to look at ourselves in a really unique way, as temporary. We're going to be here. Our status is temporary. And then we get to do it again. And the problem for a Buddhist doing it again is you forgot what you did the last time. So you keep repeating all the same mistakes. But one day you'll get it. So those are the three images that Siddhartha saw, which really changed his thinking and also changed my thinking. And then the fourth, which was the most important, because the fourth held the answer to the other three. And that was the yogi, the mendicant, the meditator, the guy that was all dressed in white, who seemed to be detached from all the suffering Siddhartha had just seen on his journey in the city. I didn't get it the first time I read it. I didn't understand why that was so important. It was so important because there's an answer to all this suffering that's created by old age, sickness, and death. And the answer is what Siddhartha found and became the Buddha. So it was nice to know that you could do something about it. And that's the best part about Buddhism. It sets you up to really be depressed, you know? It's just because, like, number one, there's no hope. And I said this the other day. And the reason there's no hope is because there's no tomorrow. We're just sort of stuck in this present moment. You know, hope is always in the future. There's no future in Buddhism. You just got to work with what you got right now. And by the time tomorrow comes, it's today. And by the time lunch comes tomorrow, it's lunch today. So we don't get a chance to have hope. We have something to do. 
we can be proactive. We can change the outcome of our life by what we think, say, and do. And that came out of this story for me, which just, for me, was such a radical concept in looking at how my life unfolds and what I needed to do to make my life uh, filled with less suffering and more happiness, ultimately peace. So I said to myself, okay, what am I going to start off with? Well, I'm going to get rid of all my polyester shirts. I'm going to wear cotton and wool, because that's what the Buddha would have worn if he had a choice. You know, this polyester with the flowers and the big collars, I'm thinking, you know, fashion, I don't know, I'm going to tend to go more towards function, you know, and then I got tired of just watching the same old TV shows. I'm going to watch PBS. I'm going to see what they have to offer. Well, it took me a long time to fully appreciate PBS because they don't have commercials, so you don't get to leave. You're just sitting there for an hour or two, you know. And if you leave, you miss something. And then they had really, like, important stuff. And nothing I had watched on television was important. You know, and now they've got important stuff. And I started to learn. I started to learn history and about the cosmos and all sorts of really interesting things that I had nobody to talk to with because all the people I had been associating with watched the same TV shows I had watched, worn the same polyester I had worn, and now I needed to find some new friends who could get on board with me in the direction I was going because of this story about Siddhartha and Shana. So I started hanging out at vegetarian restaurants. I'm thinking, that's where these people are going to be, you know, these people with higher consciousness. And, and, and they weren't. They weren't there, you know. But what I started to see is a lot of those people were here at IBMC, that when I would come for meditation or I would come for some of the classes they offered or come to the Sunday service, the conversation often was at a higher level than I was used to. So I always learned something. Every time I came to Sunday service, I always learned something. Something I hadn't been aware of or something I had been aware of but had looked at it incorrectly. And, 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 and sometimes I befriended people and we would hang out together and we'd talk Really interesting talks. And then I'd go back to work, and it was just the same mundane stuff. And then I'd call my family, and it was the same mundane stuff. And I started to realize, you know what? You're not going to be able to bring everybody with you on this journey. Because they have their journey, and they're always going to look at you in a certain way. All the old friends remember you as old friends. Your family never gives you a break. And they're always going to think of you as the little guy who didn't take out the trash. And, and it goes on and on and on. But then you have this new set of friends that you can hang out with. And oftentimes in America, we call it sangha, other people who are practicing. But the traditional definition of sangha are monks and nuns, novice and fully ordained monks and nuns. That's your sangha. And these people don't necessarily watch TV at all. You know, they got other stuff to do. And, and they've given up working, which sounds like a wonderful thing to a lot of people to not have to work ever again. But what they've taken on instead of a job is a lifestyle, which means they never get a day off. It looks like they get a day off sometimes. It looks like they get to go out and do some fun stuff, but they're always monks. And if lay people see monks out doing fun stuff, they want to talk to them. 
and they ask them questions about the Dhammapada or the seven factors of enlightenment or the four noble truths. So the monks have to go hide in the zendo, you know, and meditate to not answer all those questions all the time. And then people expect them to be perfect. And for a long time, lay people weren't allowed to know the vows that the monks and nuns take because they would always be critical. You didn't follow vow 43 to the letter of the law. Why do you have two pieces of chocolate cake? What does that mean? Aren't you enlightened yet? Well, I often think about myself and my ordination, and the reason I took ordination is because I needed more work on myself than the average person. So I needed more time to work on that. It wasn't that I was better, I was worse. (laughs) And after 25 years, I'm starting to get a little better, you know? But it's really lifelong. Perfection doesn't come overnight, for sure. I'm thinking maybe 10,000 lifetimes to be perfect. And then by the time you're perfect, you only have that one lifetime to live, and then you never have to be born again. And then then you're through. All that time trying to be perfect, and then it's over. Never really enjoying the perfection long enough to say, hey, look who's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So then, after the going through, you know, the city, then Siddhartha decides he's going to leave. He's going to find the answer to suffering. This becomes problematic in America because on the very night his firstborn entered the world, he left him. He left his wife and left his child in the care of his parents, the king and queen, and went out on his own to find the answer to suffering. So in America we say, wow, dead beat dad. Why didn't he take care of his young boy and his wife? He was a father. And the answer, I think, is that, well, it was more important for him to find the answer to suffering for all humans, not just his family. In the same way, oftentimes, soldiers will go overseas to fight for America and leave their wife and children behind because they're performing the greater good. But he did say, according to Venerable Hung Shur in one of the songs he wrote, he did say, when I find the answer, I'll come back and get you. He didn't abandon them forever. He just said, I've got to go find the answer to suffering, and when I do, I'll come back and get you. So, great. So, six years working hard. Man, you know, meditating, fasting, yoga, all the stuff that we need to do to realize what we already have. And then that one night of enlightenment, whoa, you know, he figured it out. Okay. He realized it's a transformation of consciousness, not a transformation of body. And for the next 45 years, he taught people what he came to understand as nirvana, perfection. But during that time, he went back to his wife and child. And said, I told you I'd be back. The son says, I want my inheritance, Dad. You were a prince. And his wife, the mother, saying, yeah, ask him for the inheritance. He was a rich man. 
I want my inheritance, Dad. And, so, and the Buddha said, okay, I'll give it to you. He ordained him. <laughs> Perfect. You know? Now you look at the woman and his wife and you go, wow, you know, she lost her husband. She lost her son to ordination. What is she going to do? So she asked the Buddha, what am I going to do? I'm going to ordain you. Okay. The whole family. Perfect. So I'm looking at that. I'm thinking to myself, you know, there are so many ways to look at success. You can be successful in, in, in marriage and successful in business and successful in investments in so many ways that we can judge a person's success. And most of them have to do with money. But there are very few ways you can judge a person's fulfillment. And I've often looked at success is on the outside and fulfillment is on the inside. And one of the things you get from being a monastic being ordained, or even practicing Buddhism, is a sense of fulfillment. That your internal world is changing in such a positive way. You're, you're manifesting generosity where once there was only greed. You're manifesting compassion and loving kindness where once there was only hatred and anger. And ultimately you're manifesting insight and wisdom where once there was only delusion and ignorance. That kind of fulfillment cannot be measured. But what a Buddhist says is this. A Buddhist would say, I measure that kind of fulfillment by the peace I feel, not by the happiness. And this is an interesting dilemma for some people who truly want to be happy. And if you say to someone, you can truly be in peace, it's not such a big deal. Because peace oftentimes seems like happiness that has flatlined. (laughs) But that's not the case. And so, so Buddhism, for me, in the beginning, was such a wonderful incentive to grow. After I got out of school, nobody really wanted me to grow in the sense of personal growth. They wanted me to grow in, in, um, in my career, in my job, in my relationships. They wanted me to stay pretty much like everybody else and find happiness through that. But ultimately, I chose to go a different way and reject happiness as being the ultimate, but found peace as being the place where everything is the way it's supposed to be.